The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Good morning, Restoration Southside. I'm so glad that you're here with us this morning. We're starting a new study for this summer. We're going to be working through the book of Ecclesiastes. And you'll notice very quickly, Ecclesiastes is very, very different than many of the books that we've studied so far. It's a book that has been talked about for many, many, many years. It's likely written by King Solomon. But what the purpose of the book is to do is to poke holes in everything that we run to for comfort or meaning in life. And it has a larger vision so that it can point us to something else. And we'll get there when it's time. But they're hard words. It's important words, but they're difficult. And I just want to prepare you for that, that it's, it's going to hurt a little bit to study this book. Because he sets out as sort of a kind preacher to let us know the things that we can't find rest in. Albert Camus once said this, if we believe in nothing, if nothing has any meaning, if we can affirm no values whatsoever, then everything is possible and nothing has any importance. Everything is possible and nothing has any importance. The writer of Ecclesiastes is not saying the same thing. He's saying, because of what we'll study, everything matters. Let's pray, and I'm going to ask God to bless our study of this word this morning. Father God in heaven, I thank you and I praise you for your word. But Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We need uh, to be woken up from our slumber and trying to find comfort and meaning in the things that we create for ourselves. I ask that you would use this text and your Holy Spirit to startle us awake. Even when it's difficult and even when the, the scalpel feels uh, too painful, we ask that you would change us. We need to be changed and we need to have you change us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. There's been an Atlantic article about the moment that you're being told that you'll die. Jenny Deere wrote this. She calls, quotes an author, a nurse, that says, Nessa Cole calls it the existential slap. That moment when a dying person first comprehends on a gut level that death is close. For many, the realization comes suddenly. The usual habit of allowing thoughts of death to remain in the background is now impossible. Death can no longer be denied. Jenny writes later, I don't know when exactly my mother, who eventually died of metastatic breast cancer, encountered her existential crisis, but I have a guess. My parents waited day after day after her initial diagnosis before calling my brother and my sister and me, and they reached me first. And my father is not a terribly calm man, but he said very calmly something to this effect. Your mother has been diagnosed with breast cancer. There was a pause, 
and then a noise that I can best describe as not quite a sob or a yell, but feral. It was so uncharacteristic that I didn't know then, and I still don't know whether the sound came from my father or mother. I think that was the moment of her and their existential slap. For many patients with terminal diseases, Coyle has observed this awareness precipitates a personal crisis. Researchers have given it other names. The crisis of knowledge of death, an existential turning point, or an existential plight, an ego chill. The reason that I tell you about this article in The Atlantic about the existential slap, the moment that you are told and can no longer deny the fact that you are going to die, is that that existential slap comes from this book in Ecclesiastes. This godly king preacher is sharing about all of the things that he has experienced, that he has pursued, that he has chased after. And he's trying to get the readers, the audience, to come to grips with the fact that they are going to die. There is an existential slap. And he wants us to know of it and make sense of it. That's so interesting to me because if you and I were to ask each other this morning, are you going to die? I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to die. And yet the denial runs so deeply that there's actual a term for it when you actually begin to believe that you're going to start to die. The question is, what would you do differently? What would you live bigger or smaller? How would you act and love and feel differently if you knew you were going to die? And that's what Ecclesiastes is about. Living your life in light of your imminent death. You see, we all struggle to find meaning in life. But we must have courage to look at this world and our lives the way they actually are. And he does this by exposing all of the comforts and taking them away. So please join with me as we study this passage together. His first point is that life is vanity. Life is vanity. Listen to the words that were read for us earlier. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. That's sort of one of the peaks that we get into that this is Solomon. But he says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. What he's saying is that after all of his study and all of his living, there's this sense of meaninglessness, this sense of vanity, meaning we long for things out of life that life is not designed to give us. And he said he even went looking. And we're going to read about all the things that he tries to find meaning in. And after his long search, he says, vanity, it's all meaningless. This life under the sun. Now, many people are tempted to think this book is about life under the sun, meaning it's meaningless in vain if you're not a believer in God. But we have Solomon here. This book is about the fact that life can be meaningless and vanity for those who do believe and for those who don't believe. 
He's actually just telling us about life as it is, and he's telling us from the perspective of one who does follow God. And so this is for all of us, those that don't believe in Christ. It's telling us about the reality of the world, and I know you're going to resonate with some of us. And those that do believe in Christ, it's reminding you again that the Christian story is not an easy one. And it's not going to all add up every single piece of it in a neat and uniform way. He's sort of exploding our follow God and have a good life, and it all makes sense. And he's doing that kindly, so we'll stop expecting things to make sense, to be fulfilled, to uh, gather together and have meaning. Life is vanity. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. He asked this question, what does man, man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? What does man gain by the toil which he toils under the sun? One of the commentators says, the expectation, the unmentioned, unwritten answer is he gains nothing. All of the hard work, he gains nothing. The way that you pushed yourself to get straight A's, the way that you worked so hard on your interviewing skills so that you could get just the right job, the way you poured in hours after hours after hours laid into the office so that you could rise to the top of your organization, the way that you poured hours and hours into your body so that it would be fit and you would be proud of it, the way that you put so much time and effort into building your bank account. And he's saying, as he looks back over it all, it's meaningless. It's empty. It's fleeting. It's vanity. Gibson, who wrote a book on this, Ecclesiastes, said this, and it's a long quote, but I want you to hang in there with me because it's so powerful. He says, basically, most of us live our lives trying to pretend that that which is real is not real. We're like children playing in an imaginary play world. And he says, this is what it sounds like inside of our hearts. Let's pretend that if we get the promotion or see our church grow or bring up good children, we'll feel significant and leave a lasting legacy. Let's pretend that if we change jobs or emigrate to the sun, we won't experience the humdrum tedium and ordinariness of life. Let's pretend that if we move to a new house, we'll be happier and we'll never want to move again. Let's pretend that if we end up one relationship and start a new one, we won't ever feel trapped in the new one. Let's pretend that if we were married or weren't married, we would be content. Let's pretend that if we had more money, we would be satisfied. Let's pretend that if we get through this week's pile of washing and dirty diapers and shopping lists and school runs and busy evenings, next week we'll be quieter. Let's pretend that time is always on our side to do the things we want to do and become the people we want to be. Let's pretend we can break the cycle of repetition and finally arrive in a world free from weariness. Gibson says, we long for change in a world of permanent repetition, and we dream of how to interrupt it. We long for lives of permanence in a world of constant change, and we strive to achieve it. We spend our lives, our better selves, with a different future we envisage more than reward, as more rewarding. Gibson says this, a hundred years after your death, chances are no one will ever know you lived. It's heavy. 
A hundred years after your death, chances are no one will ever know that you lived. That's what he's talking about here. He says, a generation comes and a, gener- a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. He's saying, what can you gain from your toil? Nothing. What can you add up? What can you take with you? What will you have left over? Nothing. That life is fleeting. Aaron and I have just recently bought a set of four wine glasses. We've had several break in the house because we have new people emptying the dishwasher. And those new people aren't always as careful as we'd like. So I went on. I wanted to get something nice, and I went on and I did the reviews, and I found one of the nice glasses that we could do. We spent a little more than we normally would, and they finally arrived, and we washed them, and one of our children, before we could ever drink out of it, broke one. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. They're brand new. They haven't even been used yet. But all of that time in looking and shopping and purchasing and washing, it's just vanity. It's just meaninglessness. It's hoping for a better experience that's dashed in one way or another. And I know that you know that feeling. Will your life matter? That's the question. I want to ask you something. I really want you to think about this. Do you know your great-grandmother? Do you know your great-grandmother? And some of you say, yeah, I might. I have a view. I have a story. I want you to move one generation up higher than that on the family tree, and you don't know them. You might have heard a story or two, but you don't know them. These people in your own family, one generation comes and another generation goes. It's fleeting. My dad recently heard this quote, and it's been helping him pour himself into his grandkids. But basically the quote is this, your grandchildren are the last people alive that will ever care that you existed. Your grandchildren are the last people alive that will ever care you existed. Now I know that's heavy. I know Ecclesiastes is heavy here. We're all trying to build and find meaning in life. And what he's saying is it's a vain effort to do so. It's strong medicine that he's given us. It's that he's saying people come and people go. It's this vain effort to find significance. Do you remember in middle school when there were a few people with power? Everybody had a hard middle school. But there were a few people with power, and you just longed that they would like you or tolerate you or ignore you so that your life was not any more difficult. Their perspective of you meant so very much. It literally shaped the way you talked, you dressed, you lived. Let me ask you this. How much influence does that person have over you today? Where is that person? What city do they live in? Do you care at all what happens to them? The point is this, is that we give things influence over us, power over us, that'll be gone, that are meaningless, that are empty. And the writer here, Solomon, wants us to understand that we should not live in light of a life stitching together meaning. We should live a life in light of our death that is coming. 
He says this. David Gibson says this. He's not saying this repetitive roundtable is, lo- is what life is like from a secularist perspective. It's not what the world feels like from the viewpoint of existential nihilism or postmodern navel gazing. It's just what the world's really like. It's reality. It's the same for everyone, Christian or non-Christian, adherent or atheist. We each live under the sun. And Gibson goes on to say this, the single question that animates him, the author, Solomon, is this, if we won't live forever, or even long enough to make a lasting, lasting difference to the world, how then should we live? And that's what he's going to be nudging us along through as he sort of guides us through the best of human existence and how it still wasn't enough. If we have the courage to follow them, we'll answer the question, how then should we live? If life is meaningless, if it's vanity. He also points out that life is just so short. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. A generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. He's talking about the fact that life is short. Life is short. That people that have this dream of significance and meaning, and whether that's in how much money you have, or power, or influence, or beauty, or how much education, or what your family looks like, that we pour ourselves into this thing, and all we can do is look back and go, that went way too fast. Life is too short. Here he's pointing out the fact that there's these rhythms in life. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. It's as if the earth itself is mocking us, that it's still here, and yet our generations go and go and go. What does a man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? Nothing. Life is vain or meaningless. Life is short. Life is repetitive. Verses 5 through 8. This is the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow, and there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eyes not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Life is repetitive. The sun, one of the commentators says, the sun chases its tail. The wind goes to the south and comes back around again to the north. The streams flow into the sea and the water evaporates and then the streams flow into the sea again and it's never full. What he's saying is it will never be enough. There is no point in your human existence where you will say that's enough. I'm full. I, I have what I need. I don't need anything else. No more experiences. No more money. No more gifts. No more relationship. No more sex. I, I have everything I need. And he's saying that day is not coming. It's sobering news, but he's trying to tell us that if we bank our hopes on something to come that is no, not even designed to come, that feeling of feeling full, feeling enough, if we bank our lives on that, it's chasing after the wind. 
So he wants us to take the things that we would think fill us with meaning and acknowledge that they cannot. Ask yourself that. Have you ever had a meal and then said, that's enough? It was so good, I don't have to eat again. Or had an intimate experience that you said, that was it. I don't need any more. Have you ever learned something and thought, that was it. That's the pinnacle of my knowledge. We are designed to want more and more is not enough. That's what he's telling us in this text. That we're supposed to look beyond the things that we find meaning in. Listen to the lesson that more will never be enough. And what's behind that? Life is vain. Life is short. Life is repetitive. And he says progress is meaningless. Progress is meaningless. Look with me in verse 9 and 10. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. His point is not that iPhones existed in the Old Testament or that the internet goes back to the medieval ages. That's not his point. Not that kind of progress. What he's saying, the kind of progress is where something new is introduced and it's enough. It doesn't need to be improved upon. It doesn't need to be uh, uh, maximized. It's that what has been new is never enough. It's never enough. It's that you can pour yourself into something new and genuinely beautiful and it won't be enough. Something will outdate it. Something will uh, destroy its meaning for you. That the new things that we're all looking for, the sense of novelty, of, of pouring ourselves into something genuinely new, it's not enough. It's not enough. This progress is meaningless. I want to tell you the story of Philo Farnsworth is very significant to your life. Very significant to your life. His changes, the things that he brought about, revolutionized the world in a way that will never be undone. And you've never heard of Philo Farnsworth, even though he invented the television. What I'm saying is most of us were watching Netflix or Hulu or Prime TV or Disney Plus last night. At least many of us were. And this invention, which has transformed our lives, some for the good and some for the worse, transformed our lives, gloriously has been forgotten. We don't even know who he is. And he's saying, new innovation is not new. Nothing will ever be enough. Fame is fruitless. So he says, nothing really will be new that changes everything and, and it stays changed, is his point. But also that fame is fruitless. In verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things, nor there will be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Fame is fruitless. It's particularly convicting for me. Fame is fruitless because I, I think there's some, some sense in which 
I believe that if I love well enough and I try hard enough and I strive and I perform that ultimately I will have some significance, some notoriety. And his point is, it'll all go away. A hundred years from now, it's more than likely that no one ever will remember your name. At my senior class in high school, we had an awards night where the seniors would come and they would give out different awards for scholarships and for athletics and for drama and art. And they would do this and we would sit there and cheer for each other. And I remember that way back when, in 2001, when I was graduating from high school, I had a big night. I got Senior Athlete of the Year Award. I got Daughters of the American Revolution Award. I just remember the sense of going back up, being called back up front to get notarized, to get noticed for my accomplishments. And it occurred to me, I don't even remember those awards. I can't, none of the people who were there that night are still thinking about that night. Our fame ultimately dies quietly with no one noticing. He's saying, no remembrance of former things. No remembrance of former things. So he's saying that we have to live in light of our death. We are going to die. And so how do we live in light of it? You see, Jesus knows that life after the fall is vanity. It's meaningless. It's, it's toil to work the ground. He knows life is short. His was cut too short. He knows that life doesn't make sense. He came for a people who rejected him. He knows what repetition is, constantly reaching towards a people who's slapping your hand. He saw how stunted progress was when he wept over Jerusalem because in all their progress, they couldn't see him. But different than us, his name will not be forgotten. What this study in Ecclesiastes is going to do, it's going to walk us through what it means to live a life in light of your own death. Many of you know, have heard the story my mentor, Ted Strawbridge, who died tragically this past year. You see, what some people may not know is that Ted had had a massive heart attack and quadruple bypass years before. And ever since Ted almost died way back then, way back then, Ted said, I'm living on borrowed time. I'm going to live my life in light of my death. Every minute of my life is borrowed time. And he would say that. He would remind his kids. He would remind AC, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And she said, are you going to be here to meet my new baby? And he said, probably not. And ironically and tragically, he didn't get to this side of glory. But he was living with his death in his mind. His death in his mind. Meaning in light of the fact that things won't add up. That people will forget us. That our accomplishments are nothing new. In light of all of this, 
What does it mean to live a life now? What does it mean to live in light of your death? Friends, as we study this and we review this, nobody lived in light of their death more so than Christ. They're waving palm branches in the air. Hosanna, screaming and yelling, all these people who will very quickly desert him. And yet his focus is on the cross. For you and for me, he was living in light of his death. What would it look like for you and for me to live in light of our death too? Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge to you that we don't like to think about that. We don't like to think about the existential slap that we are going to die. We flirt in our heads with the fact that we might be the only person who ever lives forever. Wake us up. Wake us up with your book, Ecclesiastes, with an existential slap that we are going to die. And how then should we live? Use this word to awaken us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.